This talk is offered by Ordinary Minds Zen teacher Andrew Tutel. Andrew is an Australian Dharma heir of Barry Majid and is dedicated to extending Barry's vision of a psychologically minded Zen practice adapted to the needs of students practicing in the context of their everyday lives. Find out more at ordinarymind.com.au. Andrew's Zen teachings are made possible by donations from people like you. So thank you everybody again for being here today and thank you Barry for giving up uh, your Saturday evening and um, hopefully you'll be able to resume your bottle of wine when you finish the, the discussion. Um, so as you know, um, many of you know Barry, um, he founded the Ordinary Mind Zender back in the 1990s uh, in New York. I can't remember the exact date now. Is it 1996 or something like that? 1996, yeah. Yeah. And uh, Barry was also uh, initiated and one of the uh, founding members of the Lay Zen Teachers Association. And he's also written uh, four books. Um, the first one, Ordinary Mind, back at the beginning of 2000. The second book, Ending the Pursuit of Happiness. And the third book, Nothing is Hidden. I recommend all of those three books. And he's, he's also edited another book with uh, another ordinary mind teacher called Robert Rosenbaum called What is Wrong with Mindfulness and What Isn't? And um, it also has some interesting discussion about Buddhist modernism in it as well. So I'd also highly recommend that book too. It was edited by uh, Barry and, uh, and Robert. And uh, those books are on the website if you need any further references. So the topic that I've asked Barry to speak on today um, continues our exploration of the question about Buddhist modernism. But it's also a deeply personal as we reflect on the question of, of whether or not we wish to identify ourselves as Buddhists. This is often, I've, I've, in my experience, this has often been a, um, a difficult um, question for people, modern people in the West. And um, so I just want to preface Barry's talk by um, referring to our Oz Zen constitution. And the relevant parts read, Oz Zen is established to transmit and maintain the teachings of the ordinary mind Zen school, the lineage of Zen in a form accessible and relevant to the present day lives of people living in Australia and other parts of the world. And the purpose of the Ordinary Mind Zen School is set out in the mission statement, which is also included in our constitution, which says to manifest and support the practice of the awakened way. There is no affiliation with other Zen groups or religious denominations. However, membership in this school does not preclude individual affiliation with other groups. The awakened way is universal. So I hope it's clear to everybody that one does not have to identify as a Buddhist to become a member of our Zen. All that is necessary is an interest in manifesting and maintaining the teachings of the ordinary mind Zen school. But I have invited Barry to speak on this question to give you his perspective as to why it has been important to him to identify as a Buddhist. There will be time at the end of this talk for questions and answers as well. So Barry, 
um, to paraphrase the person who interviewed Evan Thompson in that article that you sent us, the, the interviewer said, for a lot of people, calling yourself a Buddhist or not isn't necessarily a big deal. Why is it important to you to call yourself a Buddhist? Uh, thank you, Andrew. Uh, I'm going to answer that in a somewhat roundabout way. Uh, as most of you know, I'm a uh, psychoanalyst as well as a uh, Zen Buddhist teacher. And I thought it would make an interesting uh, comparison uh, to examine why I call myself a psychoanalyst and what that means and how does that kind of identification compare to my calling myself a Buddhist. A psychoanalysis was founded by Sigmund Freud, the turn of the 19th century. And by calling myself a psychoanalyst, I acknowledge that I am an heir of Freud, that he established a discipline, and if you will, a lineage of people he trained and practiced with and taught and that there was a form of practice that he instituted to deal with certain kinds of hitherto puzzling or untreatable psychological problems. We started seeing people four or five times a week, an hour at a time, sometimes having them lie down on a couch talk in a manner that he described as free association. It wasn't uh, simply a conversation. He prescribed a particular kind of way of paying attention to moment-to-moment -moment thought not, and how we communicate that to another person and not just what arises, but our own judgments and comments and inhibitions about what arises, what we're comfortable saying to another person, what we're not. And Freud developed a whole theory of mind, theory of suffering that he said was revealed through this particular discipline a free association within the context of a psychoanalytic treatment. And he said that he had discovered things about the mind that had gone hitherto unnoticed, or certainly not taken into account by the medical profession or anyone who had been called upon to treat people for this kind of suffering. He formulated a theory of the unconscious, unconscious wishes and drives, a whole metapsychology. 
In the course of his lifetime, he published his theories in over 30 volumes of uh, uh, writing, outlining case studies and theories. He covered a whole, whole range of topics from personal to cultural, historical, mythological. But even before Freud died, during his lifetime, the people who he trained or treated uh, in psychoanalysis and who then themselves became psychoanalysts began to develop theories of their own. And many times they differed from Freud, in sometimes ways that were subtle and sometimes ways that were quite radical. And he uh, did not necessarily uh, have a high tolerance for disagreement or controversy within the field that he started. And so many of these people who developed different theories of their own broke with him, and developed schools of their own, but they all continued to call themselves psychoanalysts, beginning with Jung and continuing down to people like Karen Hornei or Sullivan or Winnicott, eventually Heinz Kohut, who's the founder of self-psychology, a man who was initially trained in very strict classical Freudian theory, but came to develop a whole radically different position on uh, the nature of the self and rejected the theory of drives and the ethical complex, which Freud thought were absolutely central and crucial to what he called psychoanalysis. And yet Kohut called himself a psychoanalyst. And the people he trained were psychoanalysts. So what happens here is you see the working out in history of a set of ideas and a set of practices that begin with a brilliant and charismatic founder, but which are transformed sometimes very quickly and sometimes slowly and incrementally, generation after generation. And I recognize myself to be part of that history. And I recognize the people I trained with, trained with a previous generation. I, I only got to see Heinz Kohut once in person. It was actually the last talk he gave uh, before he died. But then I trained with some of the people he trained. And so I became inducted into a set of practices and into a whole 
history and theoretical model of the mind and how the self works and how it suffers. And with that, a kind of theory of cure or transformation. And so now, something like 125 years after Freud established psychoanalysis, I call myself a psychoanalyst, even though if Freud were to show up and see what I was doing, he would say, that's not analysis, right? But to me, it's a sign that it's a living, evolving discipline and practice uh, of which I am the latest representative. And as I not only practice it, but I also now teach it and write about it and train on the next generation of people in this practice. So how does that compare to Buddhism? I think you can hear that the way I'm talking about it, that I think it's really very, very similar. Buddhism, though, was not founded 125 years ago, but maybe 2,500 years ago by Shakyamuni. We are left with some record, written records, none of which date to the time of Buddha himself, but were compiled by disciples of his disciples of his disciples hundreds of years after his death. I've read some of those texts, Dhammapada and some of the classic sutras. But I can't say that I've read them all, and I certainly haven't read them in the original languages any more than I've read Freud in German. So it comes down to me through a lineage, through people who have taught and practiced and passed this along generation after generation. And although you might try to ask, well, what, what are the characteristics? What do you have to believe in order to be a psychoanalyst? Is there any one thing that you say, well, if you don't believe in that, you're not a psychoanalyst? It would actually be hard to come up with a single thing. Even the notion of the unconscious has changed radically from a picture of a sort of hidden recess in the mind filled with what has been repressed from consciousness instead to a kind of sense that much of what we hope and dread and wish goes on outside of our consciousness and that there's unconscious processes but not necessarily a thing or a place called the unconscious. So even the most fundamental ideas about what psychoanalysis is always being re-examined. 
And in Buddhism, there's similarly a very radical transformation of what people consider to be fundamental to being a Buddhist. In Shakyamuni's day, being a Buddhist meant being a renunciant, a home leaver. There was a strong sense that attachment was the source of suffering. Attachment that was often taken very literally as maintaining ties to your family or having any kind of primary love relationship in your life. And it meant having no home, no fixed abode, no security of any kind of property, that you lived solely on alms, what could be gathered from begging in the street day to day. Your only possessions would be the robe on your back and the bowl in which you begged for food. But Buddhism evolved when it went uh, to China. Uh, beggars were not uh, considered itinerant uh, home, uh, holy men the way they might uh, be in India. Uh, they were probably treated much more like the way we treat our homeless people. Uh, they had no special holy status. And when Buddhists went to China, Instead of being itinerant monks, they became, they put down roots and they became members of self-sufficient, uh, you know, farming communities. They had to raise their own food. And instead of going out begging for alms, they would seek the patronage of uh, the emperor or some local lord. And they settled down in one place. They had a whole different form of life than uh, people who called themselves Buddhists in India. But they were still Buddhists. And the same thing, of course, that happened is it migrated to China and has now come to, to America. So what we have is not a kind of uh, continuity of fixed beliefs or any kind of um, catechism that we have to all adhere to if we're going to be psychoanalysts or we're going to be Buddhists. Rather, what we're talking about is a recognition of our place in a particular history, a history of a particular uh, discipline and practice. And even, uh, you know, for us, the practice of meditation is, feels absolutely central to what we do uh, as Zen Buddhists. But if you go to Japan, uh, monks and monasteries there may spend very little time doing uh, Zazen. Uh, 
their time may be taken up much more with work and ritual and the community service and performing funerals and things like that. Yet they're all Buddhists. See, one of the core concepts of Buddhism that has endured over all these centuries is a notion of interconnectedness and, or interdependence. And instead of trying to free ourselves of that or thinking that somehow there's a state free of all attachment, I think that uh, the way we think and practice now is to recognize the inevitability of dependency, a dependency on each other and on those who came before us. When some people ask me, why did I keep using chants in Sino-Japanese in our Zendo instead of doing everything in English, I said, I didn't want people to think Zen was invented in Southern California. You know, I wanted people to be aware that it had a history and that we were the heirs of something and that we should understand something of our family history. We should uh, hold on to parts of these things. We should understand where we came from, how it evolved, how it changed, when it changed, and something about why it changed. Because we were now the people making those decisions. See, our situation is we are both conditioned by what has gone before us, and we're in the position of changing or reconditioning the next generation. So I think it's important to have and maintain that sense of history and interconnection, to understand where it came from and how it changed and what our own responsibility is and the continuing of it. Now, from what I've said so far, we could be talking about Zen as any kind of historical and cultural product, but I think it's a particularly religious one. And that has a meaning that has also evolved considerably over time. Uh, it does mean participation in a community. I think one of the things that I try to convey to people is that meditation isn't something uh, that just is going on inside your head, between your ears. Uh, meditation is not a private experience. It's not uh, simply a matter of cultivating a certain state of consciousness, trying to get into that state of holding on to it. 
It's not about getting into a state that uh, will show up on an EEG and show whether you're really meditating or not. Evan Thompson, uh, word for that uh, way of thinking is neuro-Buddhism. But one of the main ideas I think of Buddhism for me is that we can't be ourselves by ourselves. That in contemporary psychoanalytic language, subjectivity does not precede intersubjectivity. We don't start out inside ourselves and try to reach out to the world, not knowing if the world is real, if other people really exist or they're a figment of our imagination. Rather, we believe that to get any idea of what a self is, who we are, that's gained entirely through interaction with the world and other people. We say that a baby's first sense of itself is, I am the one that makes mommy smile. Mommy's the one that makes me smile. It's through interaction that we discover not just others, but discover ourselves. So part of Zen Buddhism being a religious practice for me is also it has this sense of connection to others through practice and ritual and discipline that has a particular historical shape and form to it. We are situated in that. We discover who we are through our participation in things. And I think that's a and it's also a particular kind of participation. See, I think that one way to talk about a religious sensibility is not in terms of, um, again, a set of beliefs, but almost a kind of uh, attitude towards the world. And one way to talk about that uh, in Dogen's terms is is the attitude of no gain. And that comes down to the idea is that we don't treat things or people solely as a means to an end. We don't treat the world instrumentally. We're not always about getting from here to there. We're instead, the religious perspective is to say, this is it, we're there. What is this place? And in that sense, a religious perspective is as contrasted with an instrumental one. 
is an attitude of acceptance, one of appreciation. And that can be at a very ordinary and mundane level, uh, just appreciating the flavor of a cup of tea in the morning. Or it can be part of a whole spectrum of experience that goes from appreciation out to wonder, to awe. But it's all, it's all simply a sense of how life is without trying to turn it into something else. Andrew uh, mentioned the book I did with Bob Rosenbaum, What's Wrong with Mindfulness and What Isn't. And part of the argument about mindfulness is that it's become a technique. It's become instrumentalized. It's gotten into the service of neuro-Buddhism, trying to create particular states and hold on to them. Whereas I think uh, Zazen and psychoanalysis are both oriented to just staying with the moment as it is. We're not trying to make anything happen. What we see is that so much of our discontent is about trying to control the uncontrollable, make something happen. And psychoanalysis, I think, uh, can be distinguished from a lot of therapies, particularly kind of cognitive behavioral therapies, in a similar kind of way. I used to tell people the difference between psychoanalysis and psychotherapy is that psychoanalysis doesn't help anybody. Say psychoanalysis, just ask you to stay with your experience. It's not goal-oriented. It's not about fixing anything. It's not about relieving symptoms, at least not in a direct way. It operates instead sort of paradoxically that we discover that the one thing we never do is leave ourselves alone, that we're always in an endless cycle of control and avoidance and judgment and fixing. And it's quite radical to let try to bring that to a halt for even a little bit. And if you can do that, the whole dynamic system begins to change. Now, if you read uh, Evan Thompson's interview about why he's not a Buddhist, he he said, well, there's certain kinds of things, you know, that uh, Buddhists believe, like all conditioned things are tainted. And I don't believe that, so I guess I'm not not a Buddhist. Well, see, I don't believe that either. But I feel like I'm in a position... Uh, as a Buddhist, the same as a psychoanalyst in regard to Freud's theory. I'm, uh, I'm the uh, Dharma holder. I'm in charge of it now. I'm running the zoo. <laughs> and I, you know, I'm in the process of saying, well, if I don't believe that, why not? And how do I have to change it or evolve it? And I think that what we, I would say is now that unsatisfactoriness comes from resisting 
the reality of impermanence and interdependence. That those things themselves are not the source of unsatisfactoriness. It's, it's our resistance to those things. That's a different way of looking at it. But that way of looking at it is what it means to be a Buddhist in the 21st century. At least if you're my student, that's what it means, right? But I think that's part of what it means to be a Dharma teacher. That you accept that you have a certain role in the inheritance, maintenance, and transmission of a constantly evolving historical and cultural product and discipline and practice. So what I would probably say to you all is that if you're showing up regularly uh, to Andrew Zendo, if you're doing Zazen with him, if you're listening to his Dharma talks, you're chanting, you too are participating in this whole cultural transmission of Buddhism. And you're Buddhists whether you like it or not. It's not a matter of you asking, do I want to be a Buddhist? You're already doing it. You're participating in it something. You're carrying on the dance. Now, an important aspect of this is that being a Buddhist is not in any way exclusive. I'm both a psychoanalyst and a, a Buddhist. I'm also a husband and a father and a New Yorker, and I do all sorts of other things. For a while, I was a printer and a publisher. All these are activities and uh, relationships that coexist, and they describe practices. They describe what I do. They don't mean that I'm taking on a, one identity that's exclusive uh, to, to the exclusion of any other. So I think that if you think, can I ask, can I be a Christian and still be a Buddhist? Well, the answer is, can you practice both of them? Do you go to the church as well as the Zendo? Do you engage in Christian rituals as well as meditation practices? These things are a matter of what you do, what communities you belong to, what your relationships are, what, how you uh, hold and maintain all those different kinds of interconnections. So I would say that um, we should really try to pay attention not to... Uh, what are you believing? Or how do you label yourself or identify yourself? But what are you actually doing? What, what part does any of this have in your life? And that answers the question of whether you're a Buddhist or not. I think I'll stop there. and We'll hear your questions and comments. Thank you. Thank you, Barry. Um, so, so if somebody wants to um, ask a question, um, just raise your hand and then unmute yourself. 
So I uh, think Marco. Uh, yeah. Um, thank you Marie, for that. Uh, a very well laid out and concise um, explanation of of, of uh, your place in 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 Buddhism and the Buddhist practice. Um, I did get a chance to read some of, but not all of the article that you recommended, um, and. One of the things that uh, I, I think in terms of my journey and I think uh, the journey of a lot of my generation was that um, we were attracted to Buddhist practices very much because of the lack of religious religious uh, doctrine and, and dogma that was attached to it and uh, that was attached to um, our, our Christian upbringings. And also a sense that um, uh, our early religious education, if you like, um, somehow didn't sit with us. You know, it, uh, it, it didn't provide the answers that we were we were seeking. Um, and I think. Um, so I, I guess uh, one of the things that I sometimes get a little bit wary about is, is when, um, you know, scholars of, 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 of Buddhism start to try and conceptualise what, you know, what, what it's all about and breaking it down into neuro-Buddhism or modern Buddhism or, or whatever. So I guess... Um, what would you, uh, so, so I guess I'm just really um, making a kind of a, a general statement about, about um, how, how it works for me. And, and I appreciate any comments that you may have on that. Well, I think a lot of us came to Buddhism because the uh, religious culture that we grew up in felt oppressive rather than liberating. And we were looking for uh, something that would function differently. Uh, for me, liberation, uh, had, you know, I pursued that both in therapy and in meditation. I mean, I, I didn't put all my eggs in one basket. I <laughs> tried a few things simultaneously. Uh, but it's right. I think that some religious practices have a way of uh, calcifying, becoming uh, rigid and uh, dogmatic in a way that uh, doesn't speak to the next generation. And then people have to go for, try to find other sources for uh, uh, enlivenment. Uh, so I think that is the story of our generation, and Buddhism came on the scene in a kind of renaissance uh, interpenetration of cultures at that moment. And uh, many people, in a way, were able to become excited about it be 
precisely because they had no idea what it actually was like in its uh, countries of origin. And uh, a lot of people had uh, a kind of rude comeuppance when they first encountered a, you know, a very formal, rigid uh, Japanese sashim uh, that was full of uh, all sorts of ritual that they thought they were getting away from. That didn't sound at all like uh, Kerouac and the Dharma bums. Uh, but I think this is how we uh, explore and find things and adapt them to our own uh, uses. And that's been, I think, the task of uh, our generation, to try to make uh, uh, Buddhism into something that uh, works for, uh, for us. Okay, thank you, Barry. Uh, so when you ask a question, could you also please introduce yourself? So who would like to go next? So, and just just need to unmute yourself, Anne. I'm on my picture. Okay, I think I'm on. Right. Um, yes. Hello, Barry. Um, lovely to hear your talk and very interesting. Thank you. Um, I guess for me, when I consider, am I a Buddhist or not? Um, I, I'm often not so inclined to say I am because I consider I'm a bit of a, a dilettante. Um, my practice, you know, my, my sitting practice comes and goes um, and, you know, I'll, I'll get into reading a bit at times. Um, I guess I, you know, try and keep the philosophy in my head, etc., and try and live in line with, with some of the practices. And um, yeah, but I, I guess that that's the main thing that, um, uh, you know, my level of commitment is a bit shonky sort of thing. And um, sorry, you well, know, you that I'm not really genuine enough about it sort of thing. Uh -huh. yeah. mm. Well, you can be, you know, you're a Buddhist dilettante, right? Or, <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> you, know, you, you know, it's, uh, you know, I drew up, uh, grew up in a Jewish community where a lot of uh, people uh, felt Jewish, but they would only go to synagogue, you know, twice a year on the holidays, right? So yeah. they, uh, the way they were being dilettantes about it as well. Uh, Part of what we're exploring is what place the practice has in your life. Mm. And uh, if it occupies a very small corner of your life, then in a sense, you're being a Buddhist only 5% of the time, you know, because all these other roles and relationships and activities dominate your, your own sense of identity, right? Mm. Uh, but as long as you practice at all, you get a little taste of what it's like to also be a Buddhist, the way you get a taste of what it's like to, uh, uh, to start playing the piano. Right? Yes. You know, if you only practice uh, uh, a few minutes every day, you'll, get a, you, you'll be a dilettante as a musician, right? Mm. Mm. You, you still may have a taste of it. You may still 
be something worth doing. It may be something someday you'll do more of, but uh, uh, you, and you know, I guess you, also for me sometimes um, I, I practice, I, I live my life in, in ways that um, perhaps I've, I've come to, to live like that and, and hold those views more from the, the reading, the Buddhist readings I've done over time and talks I've listened to, etc. Um, but as I'm living my life, I'm not necessarily thinking that this is a, a Buddhist way to behave or that, um, you know, and other people can behave in those ways too without being Buddhist. So that's that's right. Well, it's not it's not a core part of your identity, hmm. but I would uh, just uh, say you know to, I'm I'm not I'm not suggesting that Buddhism has to be something that you you know you make a conversion to Buddhism and now hmm. this is how I identify once and for all and this is me right it's um, it's much more like this is a practice that is part of my life yes. and the different degrees I will identify as a person who does that practice. Mm -hmm. right? Yes. In yes. the same way you might identify more or less as someone who plays the piano. Yes. Thank yes. you. Thank you. Thank you. Okay. Who would like to go next? Uh, Phil. Hi, Barry. Um, thanks for a great talk. I'm Phil from Coffs Harbour. Thought I'd introduce Hello. myself. Hello. Um, you, you've spoken a little bit about um, Zazen in your talk. A couple of points you made. One was that it's, it's sort of died off in the East a fair bit as a practice. Mm -hmm. It still seems important in the West. But something that I guess my background... Um, my professional training is in science, and I can't help but sometimes look at Zazen as a method. As a what? Uh, as a method, as a, method as a technique. Yeah. And, and yet there's a lot of discourse in the literature about not being a technique, and yet in some ways, by doing it consistently and regularly and trying to understand it, it seems to me like a method, not necessarily getting you somewhere, but... It is a methodical practice. It's methodical. It's a discipline. It can be uh, uh, ritualized. But, uh, and I think it's almost inevitable that people come to practice thinking of it as a method or a technique. And it's almost what one of the fruits of practice that you can come uh to see it as just sitting uh and to have the method or technique dimension to it drop away and have something still be left over uh, i think that that so you're saying i sorry, think that's saying that it's becomes religious instead of a instead of a technique instead of a okay method. okay i guess I, yeah, I was just interested in in your perspective on it, rather than, oh, I wasn't trying to argue for it being a method or, a, or I'm not particularly interested in what is it, neuro-Buddhism, for example. I'm not, I'm not trying to present a point of view. I just feel 
it just feels to me like a technique when I do it. But you're saying I'm really it's more about think, religious I'm, I'm trying to say I think that's very natural. Yeah. Uh, and that it's probably where everybody begins and they continue, you know, for a long time. I'm just suggesting mm -hmm. that it can open up into a different uh, kind of sensibility uh, where you still okay. do it, but without that sense of technique. It's still a discipline, uh, but th there's a difference. Okay. No, thanks for that. Yeah. Um, I mean, from my perspective on that one, it's something about being careful not to establish a duality between the formal practice of Zazen and the rest of our life. Mm -hmm. So you're not, we're not going to go around in our everyday life practicing a technique, I don't think. We're just going to be living and responding. And so, yeah. Okay, thank one you. Of the thing, one of the things I've said about that is that a technique is something you can do well or badly. Right? And you can always be asking, how am I doing? And Zazen is potentially a step off of that grid of, how, of, of well or badly. That the, the question stops applying. Yeah. Okay, great. Thank you, Barry and Phil. Who would like to go next? Um, sorry, Louise? Mute me. Yeah. Oh. Hi, I'm Louise and I'm from Bellingen. Um, I have a daily practice. I've been meditating for a long time with both Vipassana and Zen. Um, I'm passionate about my practice, but I don't call myself a Buddhist because I feel that it creates a feeling of separateness between myself and others. And I like to include Buddhist concepts in my conversation and in every part of my life where possible. But I feel that uh, calling myself a Buddhist creates a separation. And I really feel that need for interconnectedness and for people to benefit from or the richness that I've gained in many aspects without necessarily having to identify as a Buddhist? Well, I don't think it has to be an identity, but I think it's just a description of what you do. You, you know, you, what, what you do is Buddhism, not so much who you are. Although in a, in a certain sense, I think those are, are pretty much synonymous. Who you are is what you do. Uh, but you don't have to walk around with a label saying, well, I'm, I'm a Buddhist and not a Catholic, as if to create that kind of separate identity. But uh, if somebody asks you about what you do, you might describe your, uh, your meditation practice the same way you might describe your piano playing or your, uh, your profession or your, uh, your family. This, this is who I am and what I do. Uh, you know, you could, you could say if uh, you identify as a piano player, you separate yourself out from everybody who's not a musician. Well, yeah, yes and no. You're just saying this is what I do. Doesn't have to be an essentializing identity that excludes anything else. I 
just feel that by saying that um, I'm a Catholic or I'm a Protestant or a Hindu or a Buddhist does have a lot of value-loaded um, perceptions in our culture. And to say that about oneself creates a separation, whereas to say that I'm a musician doesn't have that same value-laden kind of uh, distinction. Yes, I think they, these things have uh, all sorts of different connotations, but uh, I'm suggesting that uh, we try to think of it much more as a, a practice than an identity. Yes. Yeah. Okay, thank you. Those um, great questions. Um, who would like to go next? Uh, Alan. I am Alan from uh, Tomina, near Coffs. Uh, it's, it's more like um, a reflection than a question, really. Um, it, Barry, you made a comparison between the psychoanalysis and Buddhism in a way, how you identify yourself with certain uh, practices. I believe. Um, and as far as I understand, the, the idea out of words, the, the term psychoanalysis was actually developed by Freud or declined by Freud himself. So the reflection that I'm onto is that it might be simply easier to identify ourselves with something that's been clearly identified in terms of a definition as um, a group of theories, practices, methods, etc. Whereas, and this is probably part of it that I would like to ask a question, as far as I understand, and my knowledge could be very um, inaccurate here, Buddhism grew and spread culturally through the world. But as far as I know, no one's ever said, well, let's call this Buddhism. It was simply uh, and this is probably a question, no, I'm sorry, I'm ignorant here, but maybe there was such an individual or a group that said, well, let's establish a lineage of Buddhism. And I think part of the little dilemma that, that I'm hearing, and I've got this dilemma myself, is that um, we are trapped in, in word, we're trapped in a definition, uh, and then we're discussing uh, a word, whereas we're establishing uh, as some kind of reality to this word, whereas in fact it's just a word. Um, so part of my question is whether there was such a time, um, such an individual, such a group that said, let's have definition and call this Buddhism and then spread the word. Thank you. Well, I think there certainly was a period when the long after Buddha died, that when they collected all his, uh, you know, teachings together, what we now call the Pali Canon, these people identified themselves as Buddhists. Buddha didn't go around, you know, calling himself a Buddhist, but the uh, later generations, I think that uh, that identification certainly took place. And, um, the connotations of these words change a lot. I mean, in, if I tell people, some people I'm a psychoanalyst, they immediately think of, you know, some kind of 
New Yorker cartoon or Woody Allen movie, and uh, it's a kind of uh, stereotype or joke. How could you be a psychoanalyst in the, you know, this day and age? So uh, these words all get um, encrusted with associations uh, wherever we take them. But I also think that we can't, there's no uh, kind of, of formlessness or neutrality to go into as an alternative. I think that that would simply mean uh, trying to uh, deny or cover up uh, something about our history and our practices. Uh, if I may continue, um, uh, yes, absolutely agree. But at the same time, it's the, the it's the cultural dogmas that do develop through various religious practices that bring a lot of people who perhaps, well, I just feel that most religious, most religious practices that I'm aware of at, uh, at their inception promoted an individual spirituality. Whereas, you know, through history, when you build this bunch of values and you mix it with cultures and build churches around, then it becomes um, a bit of a temple. Um, and uh, both yourself and, and uh, Andrew, uh, in fact, you emanate a certain kind of, um, by wearing your insignias even that, um, you emanate a certain um, privilege, I suppose, which separates us immediately for those who don't wear the, you know, even in the Zoom uh, um, um, uh, session. Um, so, yeah, just a reflection again, religious practices, as I know, promoted individual spiritual growth, whereas as we go through history and as we keep building our associations, and I fully agree, there's probably no, no other way. People need definition, people need, especially if you're a novice to it, but nonetheless, I find it very interesting that such a thing exists. Well, I think that um, there's no question that religions can calcify, become authoritarian and dogmatic. But I think that um, uh, there is also uh, an inescapability of, of a form uh, and uh, something like an authority or expertise if you're going to master any kind of discipline. And I think that's, you know, it's, uh, it's true if you're going to go to a piano teacher or a, uh, a Zen teacher. There's some expectation that this person has been doing it a long time, knows something about it, and is worth uh, consulting. And so uh, I, I wear this as a kind of uh, uh, insignia of uh, expertise, of uh, and uh, sort of like a doctor's white coat. You know, this is sort of how you know uh, who you're talking to. Okay, thank you, Alan. Uh, great question. I'll make this the last question, Barry. Kind of like continues from Alan's question. Sure. So, um, so traditionally, to become a Buddhist, you participate in the public ceremony called receiving the precepts. 
Um, now, when Joko established the Ordinary Mind Zen School, um, I think she uh, really gave away her Buddhist uniform, including the Rakasu, and uh, also did away with the, uh, the precept ceremony. At a certain point in your career, you re-established this ceremony. Um, why did you reintroduce the, this ritual back into your Sangha? Well, I wanted it to uh, be part of uh, some additional training for students. And the, uh, it meant uh, students who, who were not there simply uh, doing their own individual practice, uh, but who were going to take responsibility for being part of a community. And so uh, when you run a, uh, a Zen center, there are a lot of jobs and tasks necessary to keep the place running. Uh, minimally, we needed people running the, uh, the sittings and learning the rituals, giving instruction to newcomers, dealing with people who, who came into the door for the first time. And so the precepts uh, ceremony was really a part of training people in, in uh, working for the Sangha, to bring their practice off the cushion and to redirect it into service rather than have it be solely about their personal or private meditation experience. And I thought that uh, organizing ongoing discussions and classes about the precepts were one way to talk about how do you bring meditation off the cushion and into your daily life. So it gets away from that, uh, again, from that picture of meditation as just cultivating inner states, but looks at how, how is it uh, connected to how we're living and behaving with others. Thank you. Yep, great. I'll I'll bring the recording to an end now.